0: and everybody so excited to be here today and I'm excited that we are starting a new series not because I didn't like the old series but just because uh, this one is one that we've been working on for quite some time and so to begin I just have to throw out there this question have you I mean are you a type of person who really enjoys the art gallery like the nice art gallery this is this is where there's the marble floors where, as you walk through the halls of this art gallery, you see these amazing paintings. And they have figured out in this art gallery how to structure just the right amount of, of natural light and artificial light. And then, as you sit and stare at this painting or this sculpture, there are other people that come around you and look at this, stare at this uh, mystery, I guess you'd call it. And I don't know what type of person you are, if you enjoy this or not. I actually enjoy watching people go to the art gallery as much as I enjoy the art, because at some point I just either get it or I don't, and so I'm a little impatient. I'm sure none of you know that about me, but, but I, what I, as I thought about it, I'm like, you know, there's really like four types of people that, that do the art gallery. First, there's the people who just sit and stand in awe of this picture, or this sculpture, and they appreciate the beauty, they appreciate the hours that it took for this sculptor to make it, but they know there's no way they could ever be an artist. And so they kind of move on. There's others that that they try and try and try and try and try and try to look at this thing, and they don't see it at all. And they, they just, they are going to hurt somebody. Uh, there's others that are they drive by the art gallery and they just do that. They drive right by the art gallery because they go, "Mm -hmm, I know what's in there and I don't know the difference between the beautiful painting on the wall and the blank wall with paint on it. And so they don't see a lot of value in the art gallery. But there are these other people, and I think they're rare, but there are a group of people that can go to the art gallery and they can stand in front of a picture Minutes turn into hours. And it's almost like if you're a C.S. Lewis fan or a Chronicles of Narnia fan, it's almost like they step into this painting where they can see the meaning and the picture and the message and, and they step into this mystery and get surrounded by it. I would even say they might get transformed into artists even if they have no artistic ability. See, See, the art gallery is a lot like marriage. When when I talk about marriage with just random people, they seem to fall into some of the same categories. We've got people who appreciate marriage but think they could never have a good one, whether they're married or not. We've got others that have either tried or think they're trying at significant relationships or marriages, and they just end up hurting themselves or somebody else. We've got another group of people that that really, really, if you came down to it, they think marriage is probably this archaic institution that, that either needs serious remodeling or else demolition. But then you've got these other people. And, and I don't know if it's that they're religious or not, but you've got this group of people who think that marriage is a picture into a mystery, a deep, insightful mystery. And the more they look at it, and the more they experience it, they are literally surrounded by it, and I would say transformed by it. And and that's what I'm excited to see us walk through as as we f- start this series. It's not just a series for married people. We spent a lot of months praying about it, and I gathered a group. And I really had to ask myself this question, Is is marriage this... Significant, practical and relevant topic that, that we should discuss in a Sunday morning experience, because um, the reality of marriage today is that 72 percent of Americans that were married in 1960, and now it's only 50 percent in 2008, last five years. The divorce rate since 1960 has doubled, although in the past 20 years, the marriage or the divorce rate has steadily declined. Uh, partially because people are getting divorced less, but uh, they're either not getting married or they're just delaying marriage. And um, and closely related to marriage, but not a direct thing, is the category called cohabitating couples with children has increased 1,400% since 1970. So... Regardless of where you fit into any of those statistics, I think the point is, and the point that the research is showing, is that if you're a young adult or an emerging adult, you have likely grown up with unclear, maybe unfulfilling, and maybe even chaotic families. And and everyone is saying, I just don't know if it's worth it anymore. The University of Virginia in uh, 1997 commissioned what they called the Marriage Project. And the Marriage Project started and continues. uh, And some of the research that they found was that less than one-third of high school girls and just over one-third of high school boys think that marriage is beneficial to individuals above the alternatives. There's this pervasive undercurrent of negativity towards it, and and they're not sure if it's worth it. In their words, they want companionship, intimacy, and love, but they just want it without getting married. And so we thought about it, and we came up with this idea or this title called Poison and Wine, because after a couple of conversations, we thought it fit, and there's this song by this ironically now broken up duo uh, called The Civil Wars, and some of the lyrics go like this in the song. I wish you'd hold me when I turn my back. The less I give, the more I get back. I don't love you, but I always will. Your mouth is poison. Your mouth is wine. I mean, think about the paradox and the irony. In fact, I might even say it goes so far as to say it's illogical, but I do think it speaks to this reality that some of our most significant relationships are anything like simple, logical, or easy. And yet, and yet, the Bible, I think, shows that that marriage, the marriage relationship more than any other, gives this profound picture of something deeper. And so that's what we're going to look at. This is not going to be, uh, or not much of this is going to be five steps to improve your marriage or five steps to make your relationships greater. Although, I do think we'll see significant improvement in our relationships, whether they're marriage relationships, friendships, or other significant relationships. But especially today, we want to just look at, is this still relevant? Why should we look at it? What is the purpose of it? And so that's where we start today. We start with, uh, with the writer of Ephesians, explaining uh, what this view of marriage might look like. So Mallory, why don't you come up and share the scriptures with us today. Uh, Ephesians
1: five, twenty-one through 33. And further, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You wives will submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the body, the church. He gives his life to be his, her Savior. As a church submits to Christ, so you wives must submit to your husbands in everything. And you husbands must love your wives with the same love Christ showed to the church. He gave up his life for her, to make her holy and clean, washed and by baptism and God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In some ways, husbands ought to love um, their wives as the love of their own bodies. For a man is actually loving himself when he loves his wife. No one hates his own body, but lovingly cares for it just as Christ cares for his own body, which is the church, and we are his body. The scripture says, A man leaves the father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united to one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illusion of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must er, respect her husband.
0: Well, I do think that Ephesians is still relevant today, and I think that the writer is trying to point out three pictures of why marriage is still relevant today. They're the pictures of submission, self-denial, and covenant. So I want to look at each one today. first one is this picture of submission, and it's really a picture of submission over negotiation. We see it in uh, the first part of this writing, that says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Now I don't know what you hear when you hear the word submit. Most of us, uh, at least my my wife, when we talked about this when we first got married, she said uh, I hate that word. And then as she grew more mature, she said. Uh, sure, I'll have no problem submitting to you when you die to yourself and live for Christ. So it continues to be a battle in our house, but uh, but I've heard people say when they hear submit, they think of duty. I've heard people say they uh, think of degrading uh, and demeaning. Submit. See, centuries of mistreatment to women have have made most women and and actually some men completely reject this word but but maybe we're just not looking at it right so if we could give it a shot if we could look at the picture and wonder why this shade of color called submit is in the text maybe we'd see something see we think of submission and when we think of duty we we bring it brings us back to this picture of Uh, the physical survival of humanity. Like, men and women had to get married, they had to raise children, they had to work side by side simply because it was too hard to live without each other. And yet, at the time of Jesus, uh, marriage has not been a physical survival necessity for 500, 1,000, potentially even a couple thousand years, especially in the cities People were able to thrive and survive without being married. In the time of Jesus, the Jews uh, who who started with this were supposed to have this very equal covenant view of men and women where women were, were looked at in the tribe of the nation of God before they were looked at as a wife or a mother. So they had this very high standing. And yet, by the time of Jesus, the Jews prayed this kind of a prayer. A man prayed this prayer in Jesus' time. God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a non-Jew, a slave, or a woman. In Deuteronomy, uh, Moses said that if a husband found his wife unclean, then, then he could divorce her. And so the scholars would sit and argue about what unclean meant. Some meant, oh, that just meant adultery. If your wife had adultery then it committed adultery, then you could divorce her, but that's it. You know, they just tried to hold up this view. There were others that, that said, no, really uncleanness isn't just adultery. Like, if it's spoiling the dinner, and the dinner's bad. If it's not cleaning the house right, that's bad. If she's too crabby, that's, then there's this idea among some of the scholars, some of the rabbis, that you can interpret it to be just about anything to get divorced for. And so this is, this is Jesus' people that have this view. And, and remember, Jesus' people were surrounded by this Greek culture because uh, the Greek kingdom came 300 years before Jesus. And so they had brought all of their art, all of their literature, all over the civilized world and all their culture. And, and the Greeks' view of marriage was even lower. If you do some reading, you'll find that most Greek men found their pleasures outside of marriage. In fact, one of their statesmen and scholars said that we have courtesans, call girls, if you will, for the sake of pleasure. We have mistresses for the sake of daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having legitimate children to take care of our house after we die. This is the Greek culture that Jesus is speaking into. But Jesus was not just in a Greek culture. He was also in a Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had even less of a view of marriage than the Greeks. Divorce was an exception, it was the norm. Uh, Jerome is an ancient writer and historian, and he tells of one Roman woman that was married 23 times to a man. Her, her, last, her 23rd marriage was to a man who'd had 21 wives. Um, they, they just looked at marriage in Rome as a contractual relationship. You would, you would find someone you liked and you wanted to be with. You would marry them. You would do what you are imagining with them. And then when you got tired of them, you would dump them. And, and that's how it was in Rome. So we often look at today and go, hmm, you know, we're just, we're missing it. Today's morals or something is, is wrong. <laughs> this is a messed up place that Jesus is speaking into and when Paul hears this message of Jesus and he travels through these places and he ends up in the city called Ephesus, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And, and the people in Ephesus, were, were, which was a Roman colony on the other side of the Black Sea, coincidentally from Sochi, if you're watching the Olympics, uh, he speaks into this place and he says, I need to tell you something new. I don't have to call you back to an old or traditional view. I need to call you to what Jesus is actually saying. A Jesus that's saying that men and women have value in this world. And, and women in Ephesus were often elevated above the men. And where, where people just had no understanding of what it meant to show this deeper mystery that, that the writer is talking about. And so that was the condition that he was writing to. It's a condition of that wouldn't receive submit any more than we would. And yet he says it. And so it's this submission over negotiation. See, we think that, that we're really enlightened. We think that we have improved the human experience, and so, so we, we want to reject duty, reject this archaic view called submission, and we want to negotiate that's what a good marriage is. We'll negotiate, we'll agree, we'll, we'll and then we'll move forward. So two Harvard professors who, who thought that marriage was, needed some work, that one was a doctor, one was a psychiatrist, they did a bunch of research, they made these conclusions, they wrote a book, and uh, they said this at the beginning of the book, or, I don't know, 30 pages into the book. Their thesis was, for marriage to continue, we have to modify our outdated attitudes, beliefs, and institution to accommodate the current social realities of our day. All right? So you, you just think about when, when that might have been written. But uh, they concluded that, that we needed to do two things to improve marriages and to make our lives more successful. And, and one of those two was that we needed to neg- negotiate fair and equal contributions between a, between a husband and a wife. It's this idea of something for something. You do this and I'll do that. And as long as we agree and come out pretty even, then we'll have this great relationship. So we'll divide the housework, or let's split the money, or let's make sure that we both have a little extra to spend, or you, if you get a night out with your friends, I'll get a night out with my friends. And, and so they, they said, this is really important to a relationship. But what happens when one person doesn't hold up their end of the agreement? What happens when one of the people gets bored? How deep does this contract go? See, so usually one person who's pulling more weight gets, will start doing that willingly out of love, out of duty, or out of devotion, but, but they'll get tired along the way. At some point, they'll get frustrated. At some point, they're going to ask for contract renegotiations spend a little time in the educational system i know about contract renegotiations they happened like every other year or every year and sometimes you might feel like that in your most significant relationships i feel like i'm always doing contract negotiations and yet this writer is saying we've got it wrong we not we're not supposed to do negotiations we're supposed to do this thing called submit to one another not not just wives to husbands, but submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Come under the other person. Put our desires under their desires. That's kind of like what Jesus said, actually. I would say it's exactly like what Jesus said when he was praying at the end of his life, and he said, Father, if there's anything else that I can do, take the cup from me, but I want your will, not mine. See, this is the life that Jesus lived. This is the life that he calls us to. Not just in marriage, but in all of our relationships, but certainly in our most intimate and sacred relationships. I will put your desires above mine. Now, Genesis tells us that that men and women were created equally in God's image and they equally rebelled against God and they are equally redeemable through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So we don't have to grasp or renegotiate. We can willingly say, I'm an image bearer of God and I will care for you and I will honor you and I will respect you and I will lift up your desires above mine. And when that happens, this picture says it's still relevant today. We can see the other in Christ, and they can see us in Christ. And therefore, as two people who have equal respect, who have equal desire, and who have equal value, we can lift up the other. Second picture that I think we see in this is this picture of self-denial. And the picture of self-denial is really over self-fulfillment. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up himself for her to make her holy, to make her radiant, to make her blameless. See, when we think about relationships, especially these most significant ones, we want dependability. I think we want... um, We want commitment, but we're a little bit unsure of what the commitment's going to cost, and we're definitely unsure of if it's going to work. We see this in pop culture. We see this with um, Chris Rock made this uh, kind of funny or ironic statement. Uh, Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And we think that there's this, like, those are the only two options. And so we started to move away from this idea of the institutional relationship, the social relationship where where marriage was, was in the public sphere and where we found like physical, emotional, economic security and in this permanent relationship that was out in the public sphere. And we've moved away from that. Now, the Harvard professors would conclude that that the reason, the second reason why we have to have this, or the second way that we can have a satisfying relationship is by choosing the right person. They're like, before you even get married, just choose the right person. In fact, they have chapter after chapter about how to select the right spouse. Well, uh, I would call this the self-fulfillment model of marriage. It's definitely what... um, what some of these scholars that, that worked with the University of Virginia found. This is um, a legal scholar out in Boston. He, he's a historian who said that it was actually several hundred years ago that, that the attitudes began to shift where marriage went from this public place to this private place. So we, we think that this happened you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. This happened hundreds of years ago this idea was that we're going to shift the view of marriage away from partnership and we're going to move it into this individual fulfillment. So so rather than give myself, what can I get? How can I find emotional, physical fulfillment, maybe a little self-actualization too. And so, you know, this these people have called it the me marriage or the self-fulfillment marriage. But, but when you think about it, it's saying that I really want to enhance my life. And I, I want someone who also wants to do that. And so we think shared goals is a good thing. Um, but again, you, you listen to people, you do some research, you find out that, that people are so worried about finding the right person that they just wait and wait and wait, and wait. In fact, um, two of the top ten reasons why men won't commit, according to this project at the UVA, was um, marriage is going to require too many changes of me. These are men talking. Um, And I'm just waiting for the perfect soulmate, and I haven't found her yet. Well, what about the girl you're living with now? Yeah, well, I'm just, just in case. She's my backup plan. Not a great way to start a relationship. But see, I I would say that deeper than that, there are two problems with the self-fulfillment model of marriage. It's not that it's good not to have goals, and it's not that it's not good to, to want to have this relationship that's super fulfilling. The problem is that it's all based on our happiness. The individual's happiness and that's based on their personal growth, their emotional intimacy, and their shared commitment to this relationship. And if that happiness isn't there, then problems start to occur. That's the first problem. I think the second problem is even more profound. That it takes a ve- it just sets this bar of expectation really high. Financially, emotionally, relationally, sexually, um, it, think about what it requires to have this great of a relationship. It requires two completely well-adjusted individuals who are totally self-actualized and self-differentiated. They're happy. They're financially stable. They have very little emotional baggage, definitely no neediness, and almost no character flaws, physical blemishes, or sexual deficiencies. Good luck with that. So, So Paul says, rather than search... For the right person. Why don't you be the right person? Under Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Care for them. Lift them up. Lift their burdens above you. Share their load. Meet their needs. Because neither of these relationships is really about the other person. Look at the text and look at how many times it points to Jesus, Lord, Christ, or the church. It's all over the place. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This isn't about a husband and a wife. It is pointing to this deeper reality of how much God loves his people. He calls the church his bride. And it brings us to this third picture that that this writer is trying to get at. That actually means it has nothing to do with our human relationships. And it has everything to do with this idea of covenant. Not a contract. Now I don't, I don't know where we're going to go as a society. As far as civil marriage or, or whatever kind of marriage we're doing. All I know is that, that Paul is trying to talk to us about Christian marriage. And he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and he will become one with his wife. So he references the Genesis story. And he says, but this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church, I'm actually not talking about your personal happiness. I'm not talking about the ways that you can improve your relationship. I'm not talking about how we have to go back to uh, traditional values or, or we have to find what we had in the past. He's actually calling them to something they've never had before. When Christ or when a prophet speaks for God, yes, sometimes they say, remember who God is and remember what he's done. But they are always calling people into something new. God, when he speaks to us, he calls us into a new reality. Moses, I'm going to lead these people out of Egypt and you're going to do it with me. Abraham, you're going to leave this land where you worshiped other gods and you're going to go to this land that I will show you it's going to be something new. When he writes, when this guy writes on behalf of the Holy Spirit inspired by God, he is calling us to something that we've never seen before. Maybe we need to read this in light of the future, rather than looking back. That's what God's word does. That's how it speaks forth. And this is what he's going for. He's saying, redemption is found in Christ. And when we see that, and we live that out in our relationships, transformation happens. You're worried about the person that you may or may not be with? Be transformed by Christ. You're worried that your spouse is not doing what they need to do and you'd really like to tell them to read um, Love and Respect because it's a good book. Yeah, be transformed by Christ. It's not about a contract renegotiation. It's not about getting fulfilled. It's about this covenant. This covenant that God started way back at the beginning When the scriptures open and God speaks forth creation, there's this man and this woman that come forth and they start the first marriage. It's a covenant relationship with God. And then we see they break it. And we see that God never stops pursuing. He doesn't do a contract renegotiation. He just continues to pursue them and love them moment after moment after moment. When we go to the very end of the scripture and we look in Revelation, it says there's a huge global wedding celebration where every tribe, man, woman, young, old, rich, poor, no matter what nationality you come from or what language you speak, you are invited to this marriage celebration of God and his bride. Those who trust Christ. This is the picture that Jesus calls us to. This is the picture that Paul is writing to. And this is the one that brings transformation. See, see, the gospel helps us understand marriage. And marriage helps us understand the gospel. And so if we don't start anywhere else, we'll miss it. We've got to start here. Whether we're married or not, whether we get family or we don't, whether we have covenant or not. When Christ comes on the scene and lives his perfect life and is about to die his atoning death, he sits with his friends and he has a meal and he transforms the Last Supper, a religious ritual, into almost marriage-like celebration. He's sitting with his disciples And he takes bread, and he gives thanks for it, and he breaks it. And he said, this is my body, and it's broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. The disciples are probably looking at him a little confused. And then he pours wine. And he said, this wine is the blood of the new covenant poured out in my blood. Every time you drink of it, remember me. For every time you you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. See, Christ is going to come back. And he expects us to be ready. Ready and waiting like a bride on her wedding day. Ready and waiting, knowing that through this covenant... Where God continues to pursue us, even when we don't pursue him, he transforms us. He changes us. That water, like the washing of the word, to present him a church without uh, wrinkle or blemish or stain, this is what Christ does for each of us. It's what he offers. It's what he still offers. No matter where you're at, no matter what kind of relationships you've been in, Christ says, Come to the table. There's a place for you. So if you're single and you really want to be married, seek God. He will transform your life. If you're married, whether your relationship is great or not so great, seek God. He wants to transform it, it's His covenant. And so we come to the table. We come to celebrate communion. We come to remember that God gives us a new covenant. And in this new covenant, we're all invited. All we have to do is trust Jesus. So regardless of what church you came from or how long you've been here, you are invited to the table. All it takes is for you to say, I do to Jesus. There'll be two people. There'll be someone up front. There's also gluten free and regular in the back if you want to take a little bit more time to reflect and pray. So, communion servers, come forward and we join me in a word of prayer, and then you can come as you're ready. Jesus, I thank you that you show us a picture of what true relationship looks like. This picture where you submit to the Father, where you deny yourself, and where you show us covenant. God, I pray that as we seek to understand these pictures, that you would transform us. God, that we would look at, at these words not as something old, something archaic, but as something that you are calling us forth to, to be transformed into to be changed so Holy Spirit speak to us right now about what we need to hear about how we need to change God maybe some of us need to admit that we have missed it God maybe some of us need to admit that that we've been holding uh, marriage or our view of marriage above you so we come to, to say, uh, I do. Jesus, I put, I put you first over my most significant relationships. I pray that we would feel the acceptance and the warmth of your embrace through this bread and this wine. The two Harvard dudes that published that book uh, published it in 1968. That said, they needed to change these things and find the right mate and negotiate the right stuff. And you know what? I think we took their advice. And research shows us that that we have less satisfying relationships than we've ever had. But the fact is, it doesn't matter what the research says. There is a God in this world who is transforming lives. He can transform yours. He can transform your closest relationships. And he can make you see the realities that you've never thought possible are actually true in him to this place where there's a huge celebration of life and love and covenant that is not based on what you and I put forth and how good we are. So may each of you see Jesus as your first love. Receive him and walk forward with him and be changed in amazing ways. And come back next week to hear about the flannel graph of where you might live. Fig trees, fortresses, or vineyards. Have a great week.